Good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to be gathered here on this like day of spring that we keep getting teased with throughout the week. It's good to be here with you all, um, especially I don't know what is a holiday weekend for so many of you. Uh, my name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time back in a while or your first time, you need to know that we are in the middle of a sermon series called Trouble Hearts, inspired by the month of relationship, the self-declared month of relationship. That is February. And we are talking about the heart, really, and the, and the reason that we kind of focused on the heart was that the Bible gives us this analogy of what the heart is. For us, the heart is often the seat of emotion. And then we have this other thing called the mind that's kind of like the seat of decisions or will, how you make behaviors happen. But in ancient times, those were combined, right? You had one heart, and the heart was the source of all of these things. So the heart was the source of your emotion, but it was also the source of your will or your ability to choose things. And therefore, it was the source of your behavior. So all things were attributed to this source, to this heart. And so we get a lot of language in the Bible talking about the heart. It as the source of behavior, it as the place where we need to start any meaningful change in our life. And we think that's still applicable today. So often the world tells us that we just need to fix our behavior. If we fix our behavior, if we just stop yelling, stop getting angry in traffic, stop lying, stop gossiping, then we'll be okay, then we'll be fixed in some way. But the reality is that real transformational change happens at a deeper level than just the behavior level. So this series, we decided to talk about some of those more dangerous emotional responses that we have and how do we get to the heart of them to really try to start transformational heart change. And so last week, we talked about the response or the emotion of anger and how it manifests in our lives and how we can start to undo some of those patterns, how we can move forward to really start to change our hearts. And this week, we're talking about another emotion that I'm sure resonates with all of you. This emotion is guilt. Guilt. And as soon as I said it, their pit in the stomach started to form. Guilt. And like Stephen said, this was a hard one to preach. Even for me, I was like, oh. Like, it, it, is, it is that feeling in your stomach that you don't want to deal with. And to make it more complicated, we actually have lots of names in the English language for guilt, lots of different things we mean when we say guilt, right? So we have regret and remorse. It's in some religious contexts, it's con contrition or penitence. Like there's this idea of guilt out there. There's lots of different words. And then to make it more complicated, guilt is primarily an internal emotion, unlike anger, which has a display. Guilt is inside of you, and it comes out of lots of different emotions. So you can be guilty and look worried. You can be guilty and look angry. You can be guilty and look sad, right? There's lots of different responses to this eternal emotion. It's kind of a slippery thing to hold on to. So to start this sermon kind of on the same page, I want us to do a little experiment. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine what it feels like in your body to feel guilty. And like half of you aren't participating in this because it feels so dang uncomfortable. You don't want to deal with it. But I want you to feel what it feels like in your body because my guess is that some of you, your heart starts racing. 
Some of you, like it's a stomach thing, like you can feel this hollowness in your stomach. Some of you, it's your throat, like starts to close up a little bit. Some of your hands get like clammy. Okay, you can open your eyes. That feeling, whatever you name it, whatever that is, that's what we're going to talk about today. And it's interesting when we, when we talk about guilt, because guilt, if I had to narrow it down to what I actually think it is in the language that we're using in this series, it's that it's the feeling, it's the emotion based on debt. So if anger is you owe me, I think guilt is I owe you. It's this feeling of responsibility. There's something inherent about guilt that has to do with wrongdoing and a responsibility for that wrongdoing, almost always in the past. I heard someone talk about it as like guilt is kind of this phantom pain, kind of like with the amputees, when they lose a limb, they still feel sometimes the presence of that limb, right? And guilt can feel like that. You did something in the past or you didn't do something in the past. You omitted something. And it kind of lingers in your past and you still feel it. And it's this phantom pain that shows up in your life in the presence of IOU. Now, the hard part about this is reading this definition, like at face value, if we didn't have any experience with guilt at all, then we'd read this and we'd be like, okay, that seems easy enough, just pay back the debt. Like, pay back the debt. Of course we're going to owe things time and time again. Of course we're going to have responsibility for things. We're not perfect. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to rub up against each other and do things wrong. And so you just pay back the debt and, and the feeling should go away. But you know, and I know, that is not the case with guilt for most of us. For most of us, it isn't an experience of a transaction or kind of a debt repayment, and then it goes away. It's something else. And that's where I think we get into this habit of distorting what guilt should be. And I think we do this in three primary ways in our life. And I'm going to take a risk here. Pastors sometimes do this and they like give names to people and the stories they're going to tell. And I'm going to do that. Let me just tell you now. These are your names. I'm so, so sorry. Do not take it personally. I'm not like thinking of you and doing this story, okay? But we're going to talk about these three different scenarios that I think... My guess is you gravitate towards one, but you probably have all three apparent in your life. Does that make sense? You gravitate towards one, but my guess is that all of us have experienced some version of this in our life. I think the first distortion of what guilt should be and how we mess it up is this idea of you did something wrong and you hurt someone, but you don't feel guilty. You did something wrong, but you don't feel guilty. Usually, that's because that feeling that you just did when you closed your eyes and you felt it, you don't want to feel that feeling. You don't want to feel that feeling, so you do everything you can to avoid feeling that feeling. And somehow, over time and years of practice, you've just learned not to feel guilt. You don't feel guilt anymore. So let's, I'm going to name this situation. Let's call him David. So David walks in, and his wife said some innocuous comment like, hey, I really don't like it when you make comments on other women's appearances when we're out. And David automatically says, uh, do I now have to watch everything I have to say? There's a defensiveness, an automatic rejection of any type of wrongdoing, of any type of guilt. Now, there's a scenario where David and his wife sit down and work it out and move past that initial response and try to figure it out. But there is also a version, one that is lived out in lives all the time, where that pattern, 
That rejection of guilt just keeps coming up over and over and over again for David. And over time, he starts to kind of build walls around himself and so that he's blocked off from connection from other people. And if he's a parent, then he would start to pass that guilt down to his kid. Either his kid would learn that that's how it's supposed to be and he would just become a defensive kid who didn't, or a defensive adult who didn't take guilt, or the kid himself would start to feel guilty and feel like it's his fault. Over time, that cycle keeps moving generationally. And it starts to lead to a place where David is isolated, but not only is David isolated, everyone he interacts with gets pushed farther away and the people under his influence become influenced by him and take up his patterns. It's the first type of distortion of guilt. We're gonna call that one unrecognized guilt. Unrecognized guilt. It's the idea that you can't recognize guilt in your own being, that you don't know what that feels like, and you see it often in more aggressive patterns of behavior. Then we have the second kind of guilt. The second kind of guilt, the second distortion, is that you didn't do anything wrong, but you feel guilty all the time. You did nothing wrong, but you feel guilty all the time. So it's this inflated sense of guilt often for things that you actually can't control. And this is probably the one that I'm gonna guess most of you feel most, identify most with. Because this sense of guilt is pervasive, like we have names for it. Sometimes in survivors, this is what survivor's guilt is, right? The idea that you survived something you shouldn't have, that you're guilty for having survived. Or mom guilt, the idea that I should be doing something more there is this name of this type of guilt that's prevalent in our society. And again, it's the idea that you actually did nothing wrong, but you can't shake the feeling that there's something else that you should be doing, and that's why you feel guilty. So let's name this situation. We'll call her Pam. And Pam has a, has a college-age son. And he's down at UT, and he calls her, and he's really bummed out because he didn't, he's not making the grades, and he didn't get into the fraternity that he wanted to get into. And Pam starts to kind of like feel this need to, to intervene in some way. And she, she starts to like talk to him a little bit more, she answers him when he calls, and then the weeks go by and he's still not better, like he's still sad. And Pam starts to have this sense of like, oh my gosh, I should have been doing something more. This is my fault. I should intervene. So she starts calling up the therapist in Austin being like, hey, can you talk to my son? And then she starts texting her son all the time. And eventually that sense of guilt, that sense of like, this is my fault. I'm responsible for his disappointment. It overrides their relationship. And she's driving there every weekend, checking on him and making sure he's okay. And you can imagine, because some of you live this, you know where it leads. It leads to a place where that relationship is no longer in a healthy, life-giving place. Either the son erupts and is just like, get out of my life, mom, give me some space, which can be healthy. Or it just leads to a place where the son becomes dependent on his mom in a way that no longer is how independence is supposed to function. But it's all driven by the sense that Pam feels that I could be doing more. There was no wrongdoing on her part. She did what it took to be a mom. She answered his phone calls, she gave him guidance, 
but that's all that she needed to do. And yet that sense of guilt still lingers with her. I like to call this unreasonable guilt. Some people, some psychologists call it irrational guilt. It's the idea that it's not based in any wrongdoing, but we feel it anyways. And then the last type of guilt, this last distortion, is you did do something wrong, and you know it, but you take no action to fix it. This is, can be really innocuous. Like it can be, I cheated on my tax form. Maybe y'all don't think that's innocuous, but like it can be some version of like, oops, I gossiped about that person, or oops, I did this. And it's just, this, it can be a little thing, and then you hold that guilt in because there's nothing really to do about it, or you really can't think about what to do about it, and so you don't do anything about it, and then it just sits there, and it starts to eat you up over time, the bigger the offense is. But it's also the the very exact pattern of what happens for most people in addiction. You just start off with one offense or one action and then over time that becomes the thing that you gravitate towards, the more the guilt starts to grow. So if we had a guy named Matt and Matt drinks a little too much at a party and he, he drinks too much at a party, he knows that it's like a little bit off and that's affecting people, but he's not totally ready to kind of own up to it. And so he starts to feel more guilt. And the more guilt he feels, the more he says, I, I can't reveal this to people because then he's scared. What if the image starts to override what people think about him? What if he loses his job? What if worse, he loses his marriage? What if, what if something implodes and he can't control it? And that fear that fear leads to more drinking and it starts this spiral. And over time, that spiral that starts leads from a place of guilt, I feel bad about the behavior, to a place of shame, I feel bad about who I am. Over time, that cycle, it's called the cycle of shame, starts to eat away at people. It starts to stop their ability to be in community with people, it causes disconnection. It causes lack of creativity in their thinking. There's lots of research studies of why this cycle starts to eat people up. And what I find so interesting about all of these situations, this idea of unrecognized guilt, unreasonable guilt, and I'm gonna call the last one unacknowledged guilt, is that I don't really think that's how guilt is supposed to be. So with all three of these, I think it's so interesting because I think at its heart, guilt is meant to be good, which for us can be a really confusing idea. I mean, we just talk through all three of these situations and all of them, all of them, lead to some form of death. And I'm not being dramatic, I don't mean physical death always, I mean, I mean relational death. Death as in the opposite of life, as the opposite of what God intended us for. And yet I think, I'm not alone on this, I think guilt is meant to be good. Because if you really think about it, guilt is kind of like an indicator light for you. It's something that is God-given in you, it's rooted in our conscience, that allows us to know when we've broken some moral law. Something is not quite right. It really is an emotional response to a cognitive appraisal of like, I did something wrong here, and I need to fix it. But that's the key, is that guilt is meant to be good because guilt is meant to be productive. And if I were venture to guess, 
I would guess that most of us get stuck in those distortions because we don't jump to the fact and the reality that guilt as it was intended is meant to produce something. It's meant to be that indicator light that then makes you take your car to the shop. You don't just drive with the indicator light on. The indicator light is not in and of itself good. It's supposed to prompt you to do something about it, to act on it. Guilt is a way that God gave us to help us keep our relationships in check, to help us make sure that we're living out our relationships as he intended. Guilt at its core is supposed to be productive. And that's why I didn't make this up, I swear. I got, I got this from scripture, but it's a little tricky in scripture, and let me tell you why. Guilt is not an emotion in scripture. That really doesn't come until much later. Guilt is a legal category in scripture. You're guilty or you're innocent. We're familiar with that. But there wasn't an emotion attached to it. So when you're looking for evidence or looking for, hey, what does the Bible say about guilt or shame, it doesn't use the words you think it does. It uses what we would call those emotional words like sorrow or grief, sometimes regret or remorse. And so we're going to read a passage from a letter in 2 Corinthians. And let me give you a little bit of a background on 2 Corinthians. So remember, obviously, there's two letters of Corinthians that we have, right, in our Bible. The first one, if you read it, is a little strong. It's a little preachy. Paul's, like, going over the top, telling all those people what they did wrong. And then we get the second letter, which is the second letter to Corinthians. And that is when Paul writes this, okay? And we're going to read this together. So this is in chapter 7. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Okay? Even if I really made you upset by that first letter to the Corinthians, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. And not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Okay, let's keep going. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. For you became sorrowful, replace that word sorrowful by guilty, because that's the emotion he's talking about. You became sorrowful, or guilty, as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying, look, I'm kind of sorry that I sent that letter, but not totally sorry, because at least once I pointed that out to you, you started to feel guilty, and then that guilt led you to repentance, what he calls repentance, and we'll talk about what that means in a second. And then he provides what I think is like a very helpful distinguisher that we need to keep in mind. He calls it godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret But worldly sorrow brings death. So let's look at that verse. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. I think this is exactly what we were just talking about. That godly sorrow, that is the original intention of guilt. The original intention of guilt is that it produces repentance that leads to salvation In other words, that leads to you living a more abundant and full life. And when you know you have godly sorrow, there is no regret or remorse left. You're done. After that godly sorrow has produced that repentance, it's over. 
there's no regret left. But worldly sorrow, what I call the distortions of guilt, the guilt that we live out most commonly, that leads to death, the opposite of salvation, the opposite of the life that you are longing for, that you want to believe. So much of us dealing with the guilt in our heart has to deal with us dealing with the latter and recategorizing it as the former. We have to learn how to take our distortions of guilt and reframe them in a way that leads to their original purpose, which is repentance, which means turning around. Repentance literally means change of heart, right? It means turning around, changing our heart so that we can live out relationship with each other. And when we do it, when we keep it in that first category, when we learn to reframe our guilt as godly sorrow and keep it in the little box that it's meant for and not let it bleed out into the world and into our life and our relationships, then it leads to salvation and not to death. I think so many of us have gotten this wrong, and I know this because immediately when I say the word guilty, you start to feel gross. We live in a distortion place instead of in the original category that God gave us. And Paul continues when he tries to describe like what exactly that looks like, like what is it supposed to produce. So godly sorrow has produced in you, this is the evidence of what he knows how repentance has happened, that the Corinthians have earnestness, eagerness to clear themselves, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done. You know that feeling and that state of being in yourself, that desire to be set right again, for things to be set right again. That longing is what guilt is meant to produce in our lives. And often what we do is we stay in this place of thinking that that is not good enough, that the longing to be set right isn't enough, that we just need to do more or fix more or, or act better, and then it'll be fixed. But what scripture says is no, those are the signs of repentance. That is the first little sign of a changed heart. And that is what we're longing for. So I'm going to give you a little bit more details because, great, guilt is meant to be productive, but what does that actually look like? Like, how do we evaluate and start to reframe our thinking around guilt so that we're back in that original category of guilt? How do we do that? And that's what we're going to spend most of our time here talking about, okay? I looked at the steps that Stephen did, and we kind of talked about this. These steps mirror what we talked about last week. And I think there's probably a reason for that in terms of how emotions work and how they work in response to other people's relationships. So we're going to go step by step and kind of evaluate. And as we're doing it, I want you to be thinking about a cer- either a particular situation that you have in mind that you feel currently guilty for or a theoretical one that will probably come up in the next week. Okay? So let's start with this first one. Identify the offense. This is actually tricky if you are in that unrecognized category, and I'm gonna be totally honest with you, I am more likely in the unrecognized category, that is my gravi- where I gravitate toward, and I know I'm not supposed to say that as a pastor, but whatever, that's my MO, more so than unreasonable. But the unrecognized, I'm less likely to realize that I'm in the wrong. 
And so what do you do if you are me? What do you do if you like, have trouble recognizing that you're in the wrong? I think there are some God-given ways to try to sum that up. We're actually going to participate in one today at the end of this. One of them is by just being aware of what counts as wrongdoing, according to us, according to Christians. And you might think, oh God, like that's a really long list. Y'all start with the Ten Commandments. Don't get too overwhelmed, yeah? The Ten Commandments are kind of my go-to of what does it mean to be in the wrong. And if that doesn't cut it, if you need a little bit more detail, then I often turn to prayers of what's called corporate confession. They're prayers that you say together. And here's the experience that I've had when I have trouble identifying the offense. I just forget. I forget what counts. It sounds stupid, but like I forget what counts. And so when I say a prayer of confession that says, Lord, I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. It's really helpful to remind myself, oh yeah, oh yeah, I have sinned against the Lord in thought, word, and deed. It brings that up to my attention of what counts. So identifying the offense, if you're in that first category, looking at already existing types of lists, either in Ten Commandments or in the prayers of confession. The second one, if you're in the unreasonable count, just, just start here. Can you identify something that you did wrong? If you cannot, you've got to work on letting that guilt go. And my guess is that you're calling something guilt that actually isn't guilt. It's worry or anxiety would be my guess. Did you actually do something wrong? If you did not, then that guilt, is, that emotional response is unregulated. It is not regulated according to the behavior. You need to check yourself and make sure that your guilt is actually coming from what you claim it to come from, which is a wrongdoing. And if it didn't, I invite you to step back and reevaluate what that emotion is and what's going on in you. And third, if it's unacknowledged sin, the thing is most of the time, if you're in the unacknowledged guilt category, you already know what the sin is. You just have trouble with the second part, which is defining the debt. Now, if you actually do owe something, like a time or you promised to do something that you didn't finish or your resources in some way, if there's an actual debt there, then it's pretty easy. You can define that debt. For 90% of our situations, it is an apology. 90% of the time, the debt is in relational repair, which starts at, with an apology. And we're going we're gonna to Take a, take a minute here, and I kind of debated whether to do this, but we're just going to come into my little middle school classroom here, and we're going to have a little, little lesson on what makes a good apology, okay? We're going to talk about how to apologize because some of us don't know how to do it, and that's okay. We need to learn how to make apologies. What counts as an apology? Because when you pay that debt, when you have to do the thing that the guilt is supposed to produce, you better do it the right way or it won't count. It won't repair that relationship. And y'all know this because, I mean, y'all do this. I do this. You apologize and it doesn't seem to repair the relationship and you wonder why. You need to go back and think about what was going on in that apology. So let's go through it. Here's how you apologize. First, and this is the kicker, you have to actually be sorry and think that you did something wrong. Yes, you actually have to think you did something wrong. So many of us are just like, oh, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Right? I'm sorry that I hurt you, which can halfway go. But really, you're not saying you're sorry for the behavior. You're saying that you're sorry for the way that they feel. And that doesn't count. And if you do not feel sorry, if you do not think you did something wrong, 
then you should not even attempt the apology. You should step back and start going to step number one, identify the offense, and dwell there for a little bit. Just hang out in the offense territory and see if you can figure out why the person is so mad at you. First, you need to actually be sorry and think you did something wrong. Second, and I alluded to this, you need to start to say, I'm sorry for, and then name the offense. Say what behavior. Don't say, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Don't say, I'm sorry that I hurt you. That can be, that can be okay, but you need to put it with the behavior. I'm sorry that I hurt you by. I'm sorry that I did this by. I'm sorry that I forgot to call you. I'm sorry that blah, blah, blah. Not I'm sorry that you interpreted my actions as this. I'm sorry that I did something. Okay? That's step number two. Step number three, you can explain your behavior, but do not give an excuse. You can explain why you did something, but be very careful not to go into the excuse category. So if you're explaining your behavior, hey, I'm so sorry, I forgot to call you. I really got carried away with time, and I know I shouldn't have, but in next time, I promise I'll do better. Versus, I'm sorry I forgot to call you. My day was just so crazy, and I just, I mean, I just got overwhelmed. You say, I just got overwhelmed. I just got overwhelmed, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. When you, when you give an excuse, it makes the other person feel like they're supposed to be, feel guilty for something. Do you get that? Like, they shouldn't have interrupted their day. Like, you, you are the person, you're, like, they interrupted how you feel, and that's not how it's supposed to go. You can explain your behavior, but do not give an excuse, and be very careful on how you explain it. I would write out your apology first. And then the fourth is, if it's appropriate, state a plan of action of how you're going to do better. Most of the time, this is appropriate, actually, even though we say it's not. So we say stuff like, we don't, at the end of our apologies, say, say things like, I really value our friendship and I hope to do better next time. But a lot of times that's what people want to hear. They don't just want to hear, hey, I'm sorry I forgot to call you. And they want to know that their relationship matters to you. And so you have to cap it out with some type of plan of action of how you're going to do better. And that explanation is for them, it's also for you to remind yourself of how that st can start to change in your habits. So if you do get overwhelmed and forget to call people, you remind yourself of that instant when it actually did hurt someone's feelings, someone that you care about and really do want to be in relationship with. And it is worth your time and effort to make space to call if you need to. Does that make sense? All right, we can close out the middle school classroom. You'll get a, you'll get a pop quiz next week. All right, so let's do the four steps, though, real quick of a good apology. You have to be sorry. Step number one, you have to think you did something wrong. Second, I'm sorry for name the offense. Third, explain your behavior. Do not give an excuse. Five, start with a plan of action or end with a plan of action of how you're going to do better. Okay? That's how you pay the debt. 90% of our relational issues are centered around apologies. Right? And so that is the debt, is our apology. And then lastly and this is sometimes the hardest one, is to close the case. And look, guilt is tricky because often it involves another person closing the case for you. It's not just you, in other words. It's not you who has to close the case. It is someone else. And depending on the level of your offense, forgiveness might take a really long time. And it isn't guaranteed. 
And so closing the case looks like something different in guilt than it did in anger because it isn't in your agency. But let me tell you what is in your control. Because I think my guess is that most of us, the cases that we need to close are about our own forgiveness, not other people's. Most of us live in the space of not forgiving ourselves for the action And that lack of forgiveness poisons our heart just as much as someone else's forgiveness for us. If we live in a space of paying the debt, fine, 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 but not closing the case, not knowing that that debt has been repaid, that we leave no regret, as Paul said, then we just start that spiral of shame and guilt all over again for ourselves. And it is self-induced. To close the case for most of us has very little to do with the other person's ability to close the case and forgive us, and almost everything to do with our ability to forgive ourselves. And scripture is very clear on where you should stand on that line. So after Paul says this, and he says, see what this godly sorrow, this guilt has produced in you? See how good it has been for you? It has produced earnestness and repentance. It has made you eagerness to clear yourself, that indignation, that alarm of like, oh my gosh, how did I do this? All that is good. All that is good because it leads you to this place where you have become innocent. Remember for scripture that it is a legal category. You are innocent or guilty. There's nothing in between. If you have repented and changed your heart, if you have turned around, if you've gone through those steps and you can see that earnestness in your own heart and in yourself, then you've been moved over to the innocent category. And there is nothing that you can do to get yourself out of that category. You need to close the case and move on because God has. God has already forgiven you. And he has made it clear that he will keep on forgiving you. And the reason that we have guilt in the first place is that he wants you to live a good life now. He wants you to have love and goodness and joy and all the good things that connection brings now. And so if you want access to that life now, then here's guilt to prompt you to change your ways so that you can be better for the people around you and you can be better for yourself and you can live life more fully into who Christ created you to be. But in terms of the debt that you owe God, that has already been cleared. There is nothing hanging over you. God has already proclaimed us all innocent and is just our work here to become more and live into that title of innocent that he has already given us. And so to end, what we're going to do is we're going to practice one of the things, and I'm doing this selfishly because I think they're so helpful for me, which is a prayer of confession. If you've never done this before, you're going to feel like, what the heck, it's going to feel a little culty for you. And that's okay. But what we're doing is we're stating these categories together, knowing that we're confessing this to God. And then the end, we have kind of this resolution that I think can be really beautiful. I'm actually gonna ask you to stand and we're gonna do it together. We'll read all the words together on the screen. 
except where it says minister on the third, second slide, okay? So let's do it together. Almighty God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, both by the things we have left done and the things we have left undone. We have failed to love you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Oh, sorry, that's on me. We're having <laughs> pause, get back into the moment. We're in confession. All right, let's go. We have held on too tightly to things we cannot control. We have made idols of people, places, and ideas. Forgive us, O oh Lord. Free us from the sin that binds us, that we may be people who reflect your heart. Amen. Now here's the fun part. Ready? I'll start. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that proves Jesus' love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory be to God. Amen.